This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. As people shave against the restrictions aimed at fighting COVID, whether it be masks or physical distancing, we hear more and more about herd immunity. That's the idea that if enough people are exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, we'll all develop immunity and be able to get on with our lives. The people who push for this say it would enable the economy to fully reopen. The question is, at what cost in human lives? John Barry is the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. John, good to talk to you again. How are you doing? Uh, pretty well. So far, I hope you are too. Uh, yes, yes. And as I often say on this show, that question, how are you doing, has become more than just trying to be polite. So let's talk about herd immunity. This theory is not just coming from people hopeful of seeing one another's faces again. Recently, we saw what's called the Great Barrington Declaration, where some fairly esteemed scientists say herd immunity, while telling people 60-plus and people with other problems to stay safe, is really the way to go here, is it? I think absolutely not. Uh, they are, uh, they do have good credentials, or at least a couple of them do, uh, but they are a very, very tiny minority uh, of epidemiologists and public health experts who think that the, the price that you would pay for that in deaths, uh, most people think is way, way too high. One of the problems besides age, of course, is obesity is a factor. We're not just talking about overweight, but 36% of Americans are obese. Over 70 million Americans are over 60. And of course, there is some overlap between those numbers, but we have a large number of Americans herd immunity won't help and may, of course, increase the exposure for them in families. Right. And, uh, you know, diabetics and all sorts of other underlying conditions, cancer survivors, uh, it, it's dangerous. Uh, and the truth is, there's no evidence really that it would help the economic recovery. That's a very, very important point. So you may well be trading off deaths for very little progress on the economy. I think it's well established that uh, 
the way to bring the economy back. It's a, you know, the Trump administration sees the economy and public health as antagonistic and they're really dance partners and the health issue takes the lead. Most people think it would require about 60 or 70% of the population uh, to be infected by the virus before you would get herd immunity. And that would translate into well over, well over a million deaths. And we're at 220,000 today. So when we say herd immunity, what even are we talking about in the percentage of people who would get it? Well, the White House is claiming, or Scott Atlas in the White House has talked about uh, 20 to 25%. That is a ridiculous number that is basically laughed at by anybody who, who understands the disease. Uh, there is the most optimistic scenario, uh, puts it at about 43%. You know, uh, figuring this stuff out is, is a little bit complicated because it depends how many people move around, who's in what groups, all sorts of things. Um, and that's a, a reasonable model that sort of makes sense. But most of the models come in at at least 60%. Some of them as high as, as over 70%. Uh, but if you talk about reality, what's actually happened, and not just models, if you look at the prisons where we actually have, of course, very good data, uh, the virus doesn't even begin to slow down, much less reach herd immunity until 60% of the population has been infected. And that is not yet herd immunity. It's still going to uh, have a reproductive number above, above one, and it will still spread, but it will at least start to slow down transmission. Uh, nobody really knows the number at this point. You have a lot of deaths. You know, the other way to achieve it, of course, is to get a vaccine. And that's what we want. But to just let the virus run free, uh, I think costs too much in terms of death. And again, the proposed benefit you get from that is to allow the economy to act, operate. But the information that we have seen so far does not suggest that that's going to work. One of the things that people bring up is not uh, just the economy, but they say, look, there are things going on with people in isolation right now that is not good. People in isolation who are depressed, that's getting worse. Increases in domestic violence, drug abuse. You mentioned many of these in the op-ed piece you wrote for the New York Times. Not as many people are getting screened for for cancer. Um that there are real costs other than economic costs to the situation that we're living with today. Well, those are real costs and they, they exist. I mean, CDC very recently said there were excess deaths of 300,000 people this year so far. More people, 300,000 more died than you would normally expect to have died so far. And that's part of the cost of this disease. There's absolutely no question about it. And isolation is part of it, you know, delayed cancer screenings and all sorts of things like that. People don't go to the doctor because they're afraid of, of doing that. It turn out to be seriously ill. Uh, and um, it is, it's real. And it's part of what makes this pandemic uh, so deadly. But the way to get through that is not to open everything up and kill hundreds of thousands more people. The way to get through it is follow the public health advice that has been given from the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, the White House, unfortunately, chose not to do that. It's chosen essentially to ignore the public health advice. Uh, and yet countries around the world that have followed that advice 
have done much, much better. Uh, you can talk about Canada, where on a per, you know, to take one day last week, which I cited in the op-ed, uh, in Canada, on a per capita basis, they had uh, uh, what would have been about equal to 200 deaths in the United States. We had 909 deaths. Uh, Germany, uh, which has really done one of the best jobs in terms of the developed world and Western culture, uh, they had the equivalent of 100 deaths that day. We had 909 deaths that day. So those are things that should be very doable. We don't have to compare ourselves to South Korea uh, or Japan, uh, which are different culturally than we are. Uh, these are you know, Western cultures very much like the United States, and they've handled things so much better than the United States. Uh, it's, it's incomprehensible to anybody in public health that we've done as bad a job as we have done. Last question, John, the long-term consequences. People speak about COVID cases as if the people who are cured of it walk away, and that's that. There was a recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association of 100 adults who recovered from COVID-19, but it found that 78 of them showed signs of heart damage, and there were 60 of them that had ongoing myocardial inflammation, and that had nothing to do with pre-existing conditions or even the severity of their battle with COVID. So this is not something that if you are making air quotes here, cured, necessarily means that you're healthy. Right. Uh, yeah, we, then there's lung damage. Even people who have no symptoms whatsoever, that included some of the uh, people in the study that you just cited, but also lung damage, damage to other organs. So we do not know. I mean, that's another real risk, and we won't find the answer out for years. We don't know whether that damage will heal or whether it will lead to uh, a much earlier death. You know, maybe somebody has a heart attack. At, you know, he's 20 now. Maybe when he's 38, he or she uh, has a problem uh, with the heart. We don't know that, and we won't know it for years. Uh, the pandemic most like this was in 1918. And there was a disease that surfaced, didn't even surface really in a, until the 20s and became almost epidemic. It was called encephalitis lethargica. And the people that Oliver Sacks wrote about in The Awakening were, uh, had that disease, there's strong suspicion it was a result of the 1918 influenza virus. Also, in, you know, people who were born are, are of, of mothers who were pregnant and, and sick uh, during the 1918 pandemic, they had uh, shorter lifespans and uh, were less healthy. Uh, these things are very possible that you know we'll see long-term impacts from this virus that we won't know about for years. I see that's another risk and a very good point that you just made. John Barry is the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. John, I thank you for being with us. You're very welcome, and stay well. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We watched the last presidential debate of the year, and the obvious winner was the mute button, possibly by a change in strategy by the president after negative reviews and polls from the first debate, but also with both men more respectful of the clock rather 
than be automatically muted. We had an actual debate with actual clear differences in viewpoints. Watching it along with the rest of the nation with CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Great to be with you, Gil. Yes, it was the first and last debate because the first one, by no rational definition, could be described as a debate. You could call it a shout fest. You could call it an anger thon. Uh, you could call it a place of intemperance or a grumpy old man. I don't know what you'd call it, but the first debate didn't illuminate anything. It didn't define anything. And if and what it did is it allowed the president to lose even more ground, which he didn't have to do. And the final debate proved that to a T. The president has a case to make. Every incumbent does. Every incumbent has things to point with pride to and say, look, I did this. This is the byproduct of my three and a half on nearly four years in office. And for the president, he has some things to point to and also try to make this election what it hasn't been until now, a choice election. It's hard to do that when you're in the when you're the incumbent, because those elections typically tend to be a referendum on what you have done or failed to do. But you can at least try. And he gave it a good effort. There's a choice to be made here. I'm a better choice. You may not be happy with everything I've done on the pandemic, but I've done a couple of things well. If the vaccine is here, wrap more rapidly than most doctors expected when this all began, that'll be because of me. And we can get back to normal a bit faster. And I'm not going to raise taxes and I'm not going to harm our our natural oil and gas industries in this country. Those are points of contrast. That's what you do. And that's what this debate did. So if you're a Trump supporter, you say, wow, I really wish we'd seen that sooner. If you're a Biden supporter, you're like, well, does this alter fundamentally the trajectory of this race? They would say probably not. And certainly they would say, I hope not. Biden gave as good as he got. He didn't wear down. He didn't stare at the camera blankly and prove that he is incapable of putting together one sentence after another, a repetitive charge from the Trump campaign. So he held his own. And the race continues with, by the time that debate was over, Gil, 49 and a half million people had already voted. Yeah, exactly. So we're talking about more than a third of expected voters already having gone to the polls or mailed in their ballots, which brings up that question, how much of an impact does this have at this point? The, The impact is not, I don't think, on changing minds, but it is important in terms of momentum. And the Trump campaign, and they could be whistling past the graveyard, but they believe it. They believe the president has built some momentum behind him in the last week or so after two or three really disastrous weeks, bad debate, COVID positivity tests, the White House coming down with COVID, essentially shutting down and becoming a work from remote White House for the first time in U.S. history. That's a bad streak, very bad streak. And the polls reflected that. They do believe there's a little bit of momentum and they believe a debate performance like this only helps. For the Biden campaign, it's like, look, you've kind of made up your mind about Trump and you are either solidly with me or I need to do a little bit more persuasion. But I also need to keep you amplified and motivated. And for Biden supporters, they didn't see anything that looked like those first two or three pretty ghastly early debates in the Democratic primary contest when Biden did not get very many licks in. And when he did, they were more flubs than 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 well landed. So for those dimensions, momentum and keeping the energy, uh, the debate was a success for both sides. President Trump brought in allegations, including from a former business associate, about Joe Biden's son, Hunter, that there was a business deal with China Hunter was working on, which allegedly was also to enrich Joe Biden. We still don't know how much of that is true, but especially considering the Trump family's investments around the world involving the president and and his children, is this an issue that might have impact here in the last week? So it'll have impact with Trump supporters who 
were very much motivated by two things in the 2016 campaign. And to a much more effective degree, the president talked about them in this last debate than he did in the first one. And that is the idea that Washington is a corrupt place. And even if things are done by the rules, those rules are terrible. And they work to the disadvantage of people who don't live in Washington and are not part of elite circles. So you saw the president hammer twice on, you're corrupt, Joe, and I'm not a politician. I'm outside this system, which was attractive for Trump in 2016. And that return to those two themes, I think, is net helpful for Trump supporters. The big problem for the Trump campaign, and they know this internally, is that Joe Biden does not evoke the same sense of the kind of atmosphere of corruption or implied corruption around him that Hillary Clinton did, fairly or unfairly. Hillary Clinton had a kind of aura around her possibly the byproduct, and she would certainly say this, of 20 years of unrelenting conservative Republican criticism about every single thing she did or didn't do. But she had that aura around her. Biden simply doesn't. It's a huge lift to sort of put this mud of corruption all around Joe Biden's shoes. The Trump campaign's going to try. For those who are ardent supporters, it will be motivating. It'll be like, yeah, I want to fight. I want to fight. I want to get in there. I want to scrape with Biden. But does it really move the needle among those yet to be persuaded or trying to make a decision about that choice and referendum? No. Trump seemed more pres- presidential in this debate, whatever presidential means in an era where many Americans are perfectly happy to dispose of what they believe is an outdated norm. Problem for the GOP may be whatever he did in that debate is likely to go away when the president goes back out in the campaign trail and makes headlines again in a very different manner, which has an impact now because of social media that it just did not have, say, 20 years ago. Donald Trump can be disciplined. I covered the 2016 campaign. The last three weeks of that campaign, he stayed exactly on message. He did not get hysterical. He did not say outrageous things. He said the same things over and over and over again because he wanted to win. He wanted to close strong and see what would happen. And he closed strong and won. He can do it. I've seen it. It's happened. And there are those around him who have believed that he has sort of embraced that idea of being a bit more disciplined. The one problem with evaluating President Trump is this disease of recentism. We see him last night and say, wow, that looks like a different Donald Trump, forgetting all the things that have been blatantly unpresidential just a couple of days before. All these angry outbursts about his medical team, calling them idiots, denouncing his FBI director and ripping his attorney general for not more rapidly bringing charges against his political opponents. Those are not presidential things to do, not the first in the case of a pandemic and not ever in the course of a president talking to his chief prosecutors about political opponents. Oh, and the other thing he said recently, the only way I can lose is if this election is rigged. Completely false. No president should say that is a manifestly irresponsible thing to say. And yet that idea of, well, he didn't say those things, so he's so much better. Well, he did say them before, and he was president. Recentism is a thing about Trump that works to his advantage more often than not. President Trump was making a pitch in the economy by bringing up 401ks, did it so often that I take it that's going to be one of the pitches on the economy going into this last week. And 401ks are indeed doing well because stocks are doing well. The thing is, only half of Americans even have access to one, and the median 401k balance is $22,000, which won't get most people through one year of retirement. I'm wondering how effective a pitch that's going to be. It's the best thing he has because he knows it's a weakness when he keeps talking about the stock market, as Joe Biden accurately 
points out that's one of the president's top indices. He talks about it all the time on Twitter. Another stock market record. Okay, well, if you are from those either rural or exurban parts of Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and you are a working class white, is that your metric of success in America? No, your metric of success is a good job that pays a good wage and provides decent benefits wherever you can find it, with or without a union to help you collectively bargain on behalf of those things. The stock market doesn't tell you how your life is doing. In matter of fact, it may tell you how the corporations that are denying you those things you most want, a good job that pays well with good benefits, are doing. And so it's the best thing you can come up with. Oh, 401ks and people tell me, I'm a genius now. My wife loves me again because our stock market portfolio is up. Okay, there's a few people like that. But it's not the kind of message that it's anywhere near as close to the more populist one the president had in 2016. Briefly, just wrapping up our conversation about the debate before we go in another segment into looking at the election itself. Any major gaffes? I, you know, there were a couple of things. Trump, again, as he did in the first debate, claimed that Biden used the word super predator about his crime bill when it was actually Trump's 2016 opponent, Hillary Clinton. It made it seem like Trump didn't quite know who he was debating. Biden seemed unable to actually nail his stance on fracking. And at one point, I noticed Biden checking his watch, which when George H.W. Bush did it in 1992, was considered a major gaffe, although I haven't heard anybody say much about uh, Biden. So any major gaffes? I don't think so. Uh, The Trump campaign will point to not only his kind of getting wrapped a little bit about around the policy axle on fracking and also saying that we have to transition from oil and natural gas. That is part of his energy plan, but he said it out loud. And what I found most interesting about that moment is the president was a big statement. Did you hear that, Texas? Donald Trump has been telling us all year that Texas is in the bag for him. It's not, Gil. It is Probably going to be won by Donald Trump, but if it is, by an incredibly narrow margin, much closer than 2016, and it is still possible Biden could carry Texas a long shot. But the president saying that in the debate stage tells me he knows something's going on there that's not good for him. We will get to what's going to be happening in terms of the election, not just presidential, but the Senate, in our next segment with CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome back 
to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In the old days, we might say about now the election is a week away, but that's simply no longer true. The election's been going on for weeks, and November 3rd is more like a publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes letter that says you must get your entry in by a certain date to qualify. So let's continue our talk with CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett, this time specifically about the election. And it's interesting, Major, like so many other people, I've done calculations that with the Electoral College system, Donald Trump could lose this election in popular votes by as much as 10 million and still win. You just need a blowout in the blue states and slim wins in the swing states for that to happen. So this isn't over. It's not. And every incumbent must be respected as a potential winner because most incumbents who are presidents of the United States win. And the president is still in this race when there's a lot of reasons why you would suspect he shouldn't be. The nation is still gripped by a pandemic. The president's perpetual optimism about that is not backed up by the data and it's not backed up by the current trajectory of things. And when you look at the statistics on cases and hospitalizations, yes, the death rate is lower than it was at the beginning of this pandemic because we've learned a lot at the medical side of this, but still cases and hospitalizations are massively disruptive to society, the economy, and our own sense of well-being. And the president can't get away from that as much as he might wish to. So he's still in this race despite that. And it is up to the Biden campaign to continue to push and press. And the one thing I would say about the week that was, Biden took four days off. Donald Trump didn't. They basically fought to a standstill in a debate, which means I think out of this week, Trump got more. He got a bunch of rallies and a tied debate. Joe Biden took four days off the campaign trail and got a tied debate. That's lost time. One thing very different from 2016 is third-party candidates aren't even part of the conversation. Libertarian Gary Johnson got 3.3% of the vote in 2016. Jill Stein, 1.1%. Other third-party candidates, another one2 This election seems to be such a referendum on Trump, pro and con. It's like that 5%, which was crucial in some swing states, no longer even exists. Precisely. Those votes are going to go somewhere, Gil. And 138.8 million Americans voted in 2016. We're looking at 150, 155. I've talked to some experts who believe it could be 157 million. It would be the largest cycle-to-cycle jump in modern American history. The last time we had a big jump was 2000 to 2004 because everyone remembered Bush v. Gore. Turnout jumped by 17 million from those two cycles, 2000 to 2004. We could see more than that this time. Where are those voters coming from? Can the Trump team actually find that many new voters for Trump and his particular approach to politics, that's a very big lift. Democrats believe a lot of those new voters are theirs. And yet, registration statistics in Florida, North Carolina, even Georgia, give Republicans some hope that the, some of the newly registered are newly motivated Trump voters. Their crossover from the Democrats or independents. But that is the key thing. This massive increase in turnout and whose voters are they? Both for the president and in terms of the Senate race, the map has gotten tough for the GOP. They have less money than Democrats have this round, and they're defending more states, and they're spending money in states major. They did not have to before. Georgia, South Carolina for Graham, uh, Arizona, even Montana, and even in the Senate race, Kansas. Yes. Who saw that coming? Nobody saw that coming. Everything is tight. And I talk to Republicans about this and they say, no, no, we're, we're getting better. We're tightening things up. Things are getting narrow. The map doesn't look as bad. 
Gil, I've lived through and reported on several wave elections. The first was 1994, when Republicans took over control of Congress for the first time in 40 years. The next was 2006. The next was a little bit 2010 and 2014. In every one of those, the side that lost in the wave kept telling me up until the last day, no, I know things are bad, but we're closing and things are getting better. Sometimes the zeitgeist, the psychology just tips every single race just enough for one side to win. That is exactly what Democrats are hoping for. They're not talking about a wave, and that's strategically correct. They're trying to create one and not talk about it. Briefly, one of the major players here, of course, is Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader. There's a stimulus bill that seems to be going nowhere. Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin from the Trump administration have been working on one. Uh, McConnell has made it clear that he has no interest in a vote on this before the election at all, even though that might help Trump get credit for a stimulus bill. What's going on there? He wants to focus on the Supreme Court. That's it. He is his conference. His fellow Senate Republicans are deeply divided about this. Most don't want to vote for anything. About half would vote for 500 billion in additional stimulus for the pandemic. But they're not the least bit interested in a trillion or a trillion and a half. And that's the direction this is going to. So McConnell's told the White House, I can't get my people and I don't want to bring a bill to the floor that more than half of my Republicans don't want to vote for. I need to protect them and their interests. And that is a schism that is slowing all of this down and will probably push it past the election. Major Garrett is, of course, the CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, as always, I thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Gil. Much more ahead on America Changed Forever here on the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In a move that seemed like it was coming since the invention of the computer, the Department of Justice has filed an antitrust case against Google. What is the case? What does it mean to you? And how might it change computing forever? Ayaz Akhtar is senior editor at CNET, a part of CBS Interactive, who many of you know from videos and podcasts as well as his reporting. Ayaz, good to have you back. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, qu- it's quite a case. Yeah, it is quite a case. And a major part of this case is that Google has cornered the advertising market from search engines because it does things like pay Apple millions of dollars to make it its default search engine. The the problem I see here for the government is that Microsoft makes Bing its default. And there are many, 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 many more Windows-based computers, but most of us switch the default to Google (laughs) because we just don't like the results from Bing. So... How strong a case is, does this appear to be? Well, at first glance, I mean, you know, just let, let's establish what the case is. So we've got the DOJ. They say that Google's got an unlawful monopoly on search and search advertising. They said that Google went ahead and had these like kind of restrictive agreements with carriers, phone manufacturers, and other tech companies to make Google the default search engine. Like on iPhones, it's the default. You can use Google there. It's also on other Apple search tools. So let, let's talk about the strength of this case at all, because you know, you compare it to Microsoft. Way back in the 90s, Microsoft had a real problem with the DOJ because the DOJ is saying, hey, listen, you've bundled Internet Explorer in with Windows 95. And it's really hard for people to not use Internet Explorer. You can't uninstall it. So you really do have something going there. And Microsoft eventually did disintegrate my, uh, Internet Explorer from uh, Windows 95 and Windows 98 and subsequent ones. But Google has an argument based on Microsoft's uh, issues. It simply says, this is in the 1990s. This is in dial-up days. If you want to switch from Google to something else, 
it's really, really easy. Because back in the browser days, I'm talking about the Internet Explorer days, it would take you maybe like an hour to download an alternative browser. You might have to even go to a physical store to get a CD to install Netscape Navigator, going way back right now. But now, if you want to switch from Google to Bing to Yahoo to Yandex to any other search engine, it doesn't take a lot of steps to the point where Google and its response on their blog post had animated GIFs of how easy it is to switch from Google to Bing to whatever on its own on its own browser, Chrome, on how to install other search engines on Android, the operating system that it creates, and how to do it on Apple products. So Google's pretty much like, I wouldn't say laughing at the case, but their argument, Google's argument is pretty strong of, you guys can switch, there's very little lock-in. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I've got my Android phone in my hand, and of course it comes with Google, in, including Google Search. But I'm just gonna hit play and type in Bing, Boom, and, and there's the download, which would take just a couple of seconds. And I'll type in DuckDuckGo, another search engine, and and there it is there, where I can download that app and use that search engine as well, which seems that it might undercut the DOJ case. Yeah, the DOJ case seems like on its face a little bit, I would say weak, but that's based on their press release and a, a cursory reading of their actual case, because if... The language that the DOJ uses, is it seems couched in an older world where people are locked in and Google's got a lock. Because when I was younger, so I'm going to date myself, AltaVista was like the king for nerds. If you loved searching, you used AltaVista. Before that, you were using Yahoo. And then this little upstart Google showed up. It was because of the search results that you could, would continue to come back to this, this search engine because it is so easy. Like You just checked it on the Play Store to get another search engine is trivial. It's really simple to just simply check up. You can probably just search for search and find something because even Google will send you elsewhere if you want to go elsewhere. So it's, it, it doesn't seem to, the DOJ's case doesn't seem to have the same kind of bite as it did with the Microsoft case, as in Microsoft controlled so much of the desktop software and it controlled how this piece of software, this freeware of Internet Explorer was so integrated. Now there is a bit of a, an issue when it comes to Google's contracts to make to make sure that when somebody installs Google Play services on their Android device, that they must include something like their search or their Maps app. That has been ugly in the past, and the European Commission has fined Google for these kinds of things in the past. And in response to this, after their, I believe it was a $5 billion fine or a $1.7 billion fine, pretty expensive. Google now allows, as you're setting up your device, a, what they call a choice screen. So when you set up your device, you can choose between uh, Google, Yahoo, DuckDuckGo, or other regional search engines. So when you're setting it up from the start, you have an option to go elsewhere. Now, people may be listening to this and going, well, what other search engines other than Bing? But, you know, there are other search engines. They, they tend to have kind of, you know, niche uses. Uh, Bing has problems, but its image search is better than Google. CC search is better looking for copyright-free material you can put on your website without fear of uh, lawsuit from Getty Images. Uh, Start search gives you Google results but has a URL generator that avoids cookies. And uh, DuckDuckGo is popular with some people because it doesn't collect your information or save searches. Good for privacy. But, again... People seem to be just 
choosing Google and even in those EU cases, which cost Google, those were two separate fines amounting to about $7 billion from the EU for anti-competitive practices, but it doesn't seem to have actually changed much. Yeah, that's the thing, because I believe in the DOJ's, their complaint itself, they said that the US, uh, 90% of searches are happening through Google. And then on mobile, 95% of US searches are happening through Google as well. So even though things might change a bit about their search results, people are still using them. And one of the cases that uh, one of the cases that Google itself takes a look at, and they've actually highlighted this on their competition page, is an FTC investigation on anti-competitive behavior such that Google was putting its own products in the search results to the detriment of other rivals. So let's say it's putting up Google Maps results instead of MapQuest at the top, something like that. And through this this finding, the FTC concluded that there was no anti-competitive behavior because potentially what Google was doing was improving the quality of search results because its products are very popular. So if, if Google goes ahead and will highlight something that is a YouTube video over a daily motion video, it's not that surprising because people like to go to YouTube. They're getting the results that they want. So the Google is holding that FTC uh, statement and they have a they provided the link for it on its competition site. So they're holding on to that because Google services, I mean, as great as they are right now, it could be only a matter of time before somebody else shows up and just takes over. Don't forget there was, you know, MySpace was a huge thing. Facebook ate it. So like Google was a small guy compared to AltaVista and it, Google's like destroyed Yahoo essentially. So there's always room, I think, for a competitor in this space to arrive. Okay, absolute final thing. There's a tendency with these kind of suits. You remember the uh, famous IBM versus Microsoft case that went on for 20 years. There were lawyers who did nothing else in their career but that case. Here we have the government with unlimited money to prosecute a case. Here we have Google with billions of dollars and the bank to fight the case. Can we expect this thing to end in our lifetime? I would say I'm, I'm going to use the Microsoft version of this because that lasted, I believe, from somewhere in the late 90s to 2001, and it was a settlement. There wasn't exactly the same kind of decrees. I'm going to hope it happens within the next five years. And also, we have to see how this shakes out for us as the users. If Google is split up, there's not been discussion in the complaint as to what remedies there would be. What would... If Google is found to be anti-competitive and monopolistic, what happens next? Because that would be a huge different future. And I think Google and its parent company, Alphabet, will do everything possible to keep everything together. We'll see what happens, though we may have gray beards by the time it does. Ayaz Akhtar is senior editor at CNET, a part of CBS Interactive. Ayaz, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. 
And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. According to a new survey, two out of three Americans are suffering stress because of finances. CBS News correspondent Vladimir Dutier talked with Walzer Wealth Management President Rebecca Walzer. Uh, Rebecca, how have you seen the fallout from the pandemic impact people's mental health? Yeah, Vlad, that's a great question. So, you know, we have studies that show that there could be actually as many as 75,000 was reported in May, and that number's only increased exponentially since then, of people that are so stressed that they're turning to substance abuse, domestic violence is increasing, suicide rates are increasing. So they call these deaths of despair. And if we don't help people or people don't take it upon themselves to, to reach out to resources to get you know, back on a mental health track, they could really be um, a different kind of victim of this pandemic and virus. So how do you advise your clients when they come uh, to you uh, and they talk about being stressed due to finances? Yeah, I think the first thing in any kind of pandemic or emergency kind of environment financially to really relieve the stress is to call, do, create what I call a bridge plan. So it's like an emergency bridge that we're, we're just going to go ahead and meet our, and worry about our immediate financial needs. So basic things like food and shelter, that's the thing we need to concentrate on the most because your brain, once it knows that it is going to be able to be sheltered and have food for your family, then you can turn and you can have so de-escalate the stress, the cortisol levels, and you can start to worry about longer-term implications. Like, okay, now that I know we're going to be able to live here and have enough for food, if, if you're laid off, for example, your family's not going to school, for example, once you get those basic necessities met, then we can do some longer-term strategy planning. We know that low- and middle-income Americans, as well as people of color, have been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. Are there any other practical ways people can address financial stressors? You just need to keep a pulse on your stress level. Obviously, children are very impacted as well by the parents' stress level. So if you can just provide for those basic necessities first and really get that worked out to just sort of de-escalate the stress, then there's additional resources. The CDC has a disaster relief helpline and 800 number on their website that people can reach out to if they're feeling mentally stressed. For people that are considering cashing out their 401k, what should they consider before doing so? Yeah, I mean, obviously, in a time of emergency, we look for all financial resources. The CARES Act that was passed this year earlier did allow people, if they've been impacted by coronavirus, per individual taxpayer. So you could access up to $100,000 this year and a distribution, even under 59 and a half, with no penalty, and the tax will not be due until 2021, and you have three years to pay it. So before we do that, though, we want to make sure that it's necessary, because once you take that distribution, it's out of your retirement plan and likely will not go to your retirement goal. So certainly, if it's an emergency and we need that money, then obviously we're going to have to go ahead and take advantage of that. But before we pull that trigger, just maybe have a conversation with a professional, if you have access to one, to ask, what are the ramifications? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do the full $100,000 per taxpayer if you have that kind of reserves in your 401k or your IRA? So those are the questions to ask, but just think through it. And it's really intended to be, you know, something that is going to help you get through this, this situation this year and then, you know, work on a plan for going forward. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by Paul Whitty Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Gil Gross. 
Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 